Good morning, everyone. I do, first of all, want to thank uh, Jessica and the chapel committee and others uh, for the work that they've put into this week and for the invitation to share with you this morning. Um, it is a, an amazing and high honor to be asked to speak at Asbury's Holiness Emphasis Week. And uh, I so very much appreciate prayers that have been going up for all of us who have been participating and for this week. So bow your head with me in prayer, if you would. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be pleasing in your sight. We pray to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I've asked the question, and you see it there in your order of worship, so what's next? What's next? And I have in mind here, what's next after, let's say, justifying faith? We have come to faith in Jesus Christ. It has been a glorious experience of justification. Uh, I'm going to suppose that almost every single person in this auditorium understands, knows, and has, has experienced this very a marvelous gift of the Lord to us. We have been forgiven of our sins. Think of it. We have been adopted into the family of God. We have a father, a real father, who loves us, cares for us. We have brothers and sisters with whom we are bound together in the faith. What a blessing that is. And we have been born anew. Life has flowed into us. We were formerly dead. Now we're alive. This is a wonderful blessing, a high gift that God has given to us, justifying faith in him. But what's next after that? There are some folks, and you probably know them, <clears throat> who celebrate and value justifying faith so highly they can't see anything beyond it. Justifying faith is the mountain that captures their vision entirely. It, 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 captures the vision, there is nothing beyond, nothing higher that can be said or thought of than these marvelous gifts of adoption and new birth and forgiveness. For other folks, there is nothing beyond justifying faith because they have adopted in one way or another what I'll just call a pessimistic view of reality. Pessimistic in terms of their own spiritual journey. There is a strong theology that runs uh, throughout evangelicalism that says, there really is no hope for moral reformation. Don't forget it. And if you wonder where that comes from, it comes from one way of reading Romans chapter 7. After all, there is the apostle himself, the, the uh, you might say, the poster child of redemption, the one through whom God is speaking the word, and there he is, it seems he's saying, as he's writing this very letter, it seems as if, as if he's saying, I am a wretched man. I try to do what is right. I can't succeed in pulling that off. I am in a log jam. I'm hopeless. Um, there is no way out of this. And it seems by this reading of Romans 7 that the only hope comes with, at the end, the answer is, thank God, I hope that in the resurrection, when we move to heaven, there will be the resolution to this desperate situation I am in. And so for folks who think this way, the answer to the what's next is go up. Go up to heaven. That's the next step to look forward to in terms of our lives. 
And there's a view that says also, and how strongly theology uh, colors our expectations. There's a, there's a view that says that if the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is truly perfect in every way, and I'll stop here and I'll say, do I have an amen? amen. Is, the, is the sacrifice of Jesus perfect in every way? And we agree on that? Okay, hold on now, because here's how several people extrapolate from that. That means that he has forgiven our, all of our sins, past, present, and future. No sin we have committed or ever will commit has not already been forgiven us. Or the sacrifice of Jesus is so utterly perfect that God no longer sees me at all. He looks at me. He can't see my sin. He sees none of my faults. He sees nothing but the perfection of Jesus himself an absolute perfection. And the, the redemption of Jesus is so perfect it can never be reversed in my case. Once I have said yes to Jesus, my fate for eternity, forever and ever, is in heaven, irreversibly so. This view that there is no need for reformation in the Christian life actually makes good sense if you accept those extrapolations of perfection in the atonement of Christ. Theology will drive our expectations and, in fact, can shut them down as well. So what's next? Also, in the pessimistic worldview, and I must say on this side, I was raised completely in this world here, pessimistic about world progress of any sort. My folks were strongly, uh, let's say, drinking from the wells of dispensational theology. The next step is the rapture, and we know what leads up to the rapture. Nothing but the decline of human civilization in every way. Everything is spiraling down. Nothing can be improved. Nothing can be redeemed. There can be no restoration, no help, no reformation of any sort. You say, well, that sounds crazy, and I would just simply say, that's deep in the DNA of a lot of us. It's deep in our expectations, sometimes unexamined and unexplored, when we tell ourselves, really, that the world cannot be redeemed, that nothing can be changed. Nothing out there can be changed, and nothing in here can be changed. The next thing, really, is up there, heaven. We await heaven. Of course, there are many folks who would leap to their feet and say, absolutely not, there's a lot of work to be done. And they would say, haven't you read the Great Commission? Haven't you read the Gospels and the ministry of Jesus among needy people? And they would quickly then say something like this, there is the work of evangelism, sharing the Gospel. Their answer would be, what's next is not just up there, what next is out there? There is work to be done. There is labor to be engaged in. People are lost and need the gospel, we would tell ourselves and we would agree. People are in need. They are hurting, and they need to be relieved of their suffering in every and any way we possibly can. Jesus went out and laid himself out in a sacrificial life of ministry, helping, healing, feeding, and how often have we heard exhortations that we, as the believers in Jesus, need to get up out of our pews and get out there in the world 
We need to go beyond the four walls of the church that contain us. And so there's a strong activist kind of mission or vision and exhortation that is replacing, you might say, the pessimistic worldview. However pessimistic our hearts may be, however pessimistic we may think the world situation is, there's still a need to throw ourselves into action and to energy and to move out there for Jesus' sake. What's next is to go out there. My guess, and having been around a seminary like this for a long, long time, I thought I would tell you, and then I thought I wouldn't, then I thought I'll tell you, I'm going to be finishing my 30th year this coming December. Um, I'm a, I, ask. I was secretly hoping there'd be lots of, of protest out there. Uh, <laughs> Like, no, it had to be your 10th or your 12th. Um, and, and, and I'd hoped that I would lose your attention because you're talking to each other. That can't be. How can that be? But you also seem to accept it very well. I'm, I'm, I'm quite disappointed to see that. But having been around this place for 30 years, we are an activist lot in many ways. We have come here to pick up knowledge and skills and even network and in many of our cases, licensures or ordinations in some ways. Why? Because we want to get out there and change the world for Jesus. We see stuff that is wrong, we want to make it right. We see people who are lost and we want them to be found. Well, what's next? Up there? Out there? The passage that I had read for us this morning actually takes us in yet another direction, one that perhaps we might not intuitively have imagined. But I just want to simply put it this way. I think that our passage actually nods very favorably toward the up there. It actually affirms strongly the out there. But it says something about a third move that might actually be the first move. Put it this way. Here's how in verse 11 we find the up there noted here. So that there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I often will lay out a line about another sermon that could be preached that I'm not going to preach at the moment. I can't seem to not do that. So I'll say, another sermon that cannot be preached here right now but must be preached is that without a vivid and real expectation and longing for the return of Jesus, it is awfully hard to live a good Christian life. And this is not a matter of threat and fear. It's a matter of the longing to see him and to be presented in him, to him uh, pure and spotless. So there is the up there nod. And then earlier on in the passage, we find in verse 8, for if these things are yours and abound, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think of those two expressions there, ineffective and unfruitful, turned around and said positively, there are certain things that he has just said in this passage which will, in fact, make it possible for us, believe it or not, to be effective 
and fruitful as God would judge it in ministry. Does anybody long for that? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. We long to be effective and to be fruitful as God would judge it. And I love the line in John 15, bearing much fruit and fruit that remains. Not just fruit that pops up for a while and then withers in the sun. I can say, we can wrap our arms around each other, we could say to each other, we long for the kind of ministry that bears much fruit that remains to the glory of God. Who would not want that? But this passage has both that and entry into the kingdom following something that comes first. And that's where I want to answer the question I've asked, what comes next? After saving faith, after we have anchored our hope in the saving blood of Christ, what's next? Is it ministry? Is it heaven? And here we read what comes next. I want to begin in verse 5, that is. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith and there's your saving faith. And here our writer is not willing to stop there. He wants us to add things to our faith. Virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control. To self-control, steadfastness. To steadfastness, godliness. To godliness, brotherly affection. And to brotherly affection, love. Now let me read this, next verse. For if these things are yours and abounding, they will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, skipping to verse 10, and if you do this, you will never fall, and there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May I just put it this way? We have an implied sequence here. Looking up is last, you might say. Looking out is the middle term. The first is looking in, going in. Somehow or other, there has got to be a plunge inward into the question of the heart and into the question of virtue. Am I the person I need to be? And we have supplied it to us then, if I am the person I need to be as God sees it, guess what? I can't be stopped from having an effective and fruitful ministry. And my entry to heaven will not have a footnote or an asterisk attached to it. So I want to then, in our brief time remaining, offer Three things I think this passage is calling us to with regard to these virtues. First of all, I think by implication, these virtues are calling us to a deeper, fresh repentance. If we're being here exhorted to add virtue to our faith, to add steadfastness, to add godliness, to add perseverance, and to add brotherly love. The implication is 
We didn't get all those things with saving faith. The implication is, if we were to take a very close and hard look at ourselves, and it will have to be with the help of others and with the help of the Holy Spirit, if we were to dare to look into the mirror with the bright light of the Holy Spirit shining upon us, if we were to dare to ask that prayer from Scripture, search me, O God, know my heart. If you're like me, if you take that prayer seriously and take this dare of looking in, I think we'll discover that there is truth that we have to face. I'll put it in first person. Working, I am not the godly person God wants me to be. There are lapses that I cannot ignore. I have not been steadfast and faithful. I have not been good and godly. I have not been a person of self-control. These are hard things to say. I know that there is a culture which only wishes affirmation from God. This is not what a loving parent is all about. A truly loving parent is willing to say, and I love you so much that I want the best for you. I love you so much. Here is truth to face. This is not easy. This is not fun. This is agony. And I'm not sure it can be done in a three-minute prayer at an altar. This may be a season to enter into for some of us. This may be a point where you turn to your spouse and you may say, you know, <laughs> I'm preparing for ministry with you. And I'm not sure that I can look out in an audience and see you there and speak with confidence and clarity knowing that things are not right with us. It may mean that we have to look at ourselves and admit that we're not as, 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 uh, as godly. This is a, a hard work, and I consider it to be something like a plowing up that will take some time and will take some real attention. This is why our writer here speaks of, of zeal and effort and energy required in this project. It's not a snap of the finger and three tears of plowing up an exploration before God of who we really are. Second invitation that comes is an invitation that has been new, very new to me in the last 10 years. Sorry for you newbies, 10 years for me is like yesterday. <laughs> but 10 years ago, I wouldn't have been able to tell you this. I wouldn't have been able to, to, to perceive this. But at first, this sounds like a lengthy and complicated agenda. How many vices are there actually that we've got to be fighting against, tell me? 53, 79? How many virtues do we need to cultivate? 217, 33, 8? How long will this take? Forever. <laughs> One lifetime? No. Three, four, five lifetimes. Complex. Lists of virtues, lists of vices. Boy, there's a lot to work on. There's an agenda that will never end. I'll never get started. It will never work. Here's where a scholar Richard Bauckham, his fascinating study here in this very passage. 
Noted that these kinds of lists in Hellenistic literature are not what you think them to be. First, two things. First of all, these lists tend to be ascending, where you find at the very last item the most important matter. And notice how this list ends on love. The next piece, though, is even more crucial. According to Balcom, and I think it translates right on in through to the rest of the New Testament, the last item is not only the highest item, it comprehends all the others. There is a simplicity to this on second look. In other words, get love and you've got the virtues. If I am filled with love for Brian Yike, I see him here in the front row, how can I steal from him? How can I speak against him or slander his reputation? How can I harm him in the wide variety of ways that all the vices would call for if love rules my heart? If love rules my heart. This is what has led other scholars like like uh, Gordon Fee and Richard Longenecker and, and James Dunn, when they come across the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, they've concluded there is one fruit of the Spirit, love. The others are the unpacking and unfolding of love. You read those descriptions of the rest of the fruit, and they nearly match what we find the description of love to be in 1 Corinthians 13. Can you think of a person who says, well, I've got the love thing down, I really do love you, but you know, I end up being unkind to you, impatient with you, I have no self-control around you. And you see how ludicrous it is to imagine that we can separate these vices and virtues out as entirely isolated and insulated tracks from each other as if we have a very complicated agenda. We have, I want to submit to you, a simple and singular agenda and that is to be overcome by the love of God and infused with the love of God. This I take to be, and this for me, this is the splendid discovery of Wesley. Um, I want to read to you three brief excerpts. Hang with me here. From his sermon on circumcision of the heart, he says, love is the essence, the spirit, and the life of all virtue. It is not only the first and great command, but it is all the commandments in one. In love is found perfection and glory and happiness. From his sermon on zeal, he writes, most zealous be of all for love, the queen of all graces, the highest perfection in heaven and on earth, the very image of the invisible God. From his sermon on patience, from the moment we are justified, there we are, justifying faith, to the moment we give our spirits to God, there it is, the upward call. Love is the sum of Christian sanctification. It is the one kind of holiness there is. The degrees of holiness are simply differences in the degree of love. And then I'd like to uh, quote from what I take to be his most important and maybe least known sermon, and that is a sermon he preached on a rainy April uh, morning as he stood on the foundation stone of the chapel as its foundation was being laid there 
the chapel that we know of today. And he, he says this, what is Methodism? It is not a new religion, but the old one. No other than love, the love of God, the love of mankind. This love, he says, is the great medicine of life, the never failing remedy for all the evils of a disordered world, for all the miseries and vices of men. Wherever this love is, there are virtue and happiness going hand in hand. There is, notice these virtues here, these, these uh, beauties of spirit, humbleness of mind, gentleness, long-suffering. There you find the whole image of God. A passage that begins sounding complicated, actually, when carefully considered, in my opinion, becomes quite simple. There's a singular passion which makes perfect sense, 1 Corinthians 14, 1. And so, pursue love. Pursue love. So, the first exhortation, I think, arising from the passage, let's take courage and ask God to help us to look within and to undertake a deeper, a deeper repentance. Second, let us look to the singular gift of love as the remedy for the vices and as the substance of the virtues which we are to uh, uh, develop. And the third, the third point in this passage, I find it fascinating. It's filled with energy, isn't it? He says here in this line, in this verse, he says, for this reason, make every effort. Do you hear your muscles applying to the wheel and turning it? Strain forward with great zeal, he says. Verse 10, be the more zealous. Here is energy, here is effort, here is desire, here is passion towards developing this, these virtues, and as I would say, towards the business of love. And yet, the entire passage is begun by this interesting line here. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has given us, and here's the key, very great promises. Promises by which we can escape the corruption of this world and actually become partakers of the divine nature, which I think is love. How does this happen? Will there be strain? Will there be work? Will there be effort? Will there be energy? Yes, those words are here. But before all of that, there are promises that God has made that God can actually make us this way, which means that underneath it all and in the final uh, analysis, it's going to be looking to God in trust. I am not who I need to be. I can't go out and save a world if I can't save myself. I can't uh, guarantee an entry into heaven as I would like. No, I am looking to you alone, not only for saving and justification, I'm looking to you to be the one who can underwrite this infusion of love, this transformation of character that can make me who I need to be. The amazing and wonderful thing about moments like this 
is that I have very little clue as to where each one of us is. I always hesitate to say, here's an exact call and an exact matter to process, whether in your pew or in your room or at the altar. It's amazing how the Spirit of God works, isn't it? What's next for you? What's next for us? There's the question I leave you with. And let's pray over that together as we sing together now.